Lieutenant Colonel Julian Toscano is the former commanding officer at Marine Detachment at Fort Lee, Virginia. His background is in logistics and includes support globally to conventional and unconventional operations. He helped co-found the Lethal Minds Journal, giving service members from across the Department of Defense a place to share their thoughts, insights, and wisdom. His Instagram account, at the Cognitive Marine, has garnered a cult-like following by those that want to grow in the profession of arms. Currently, he is enrolled at the United States Naval Institute, and in our conversation today, we explore what logistics will look like in large-scale combat operations against a near-peer adversary. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. All right, thanks for joining us again for another episode of The Raven Report. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have a very special guest, Lieutenant Colonel Julian Sukano. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm, you know, stoked to be joining you for this session. Oh, yeah. I, well, I'm super stoked to have, like, a, a legit, like, logistician uh, on here to talk, like, uh, all things logistics uh, going into LISCO. It's actually kind of, like, hard to find somebody who's uh, interested in logistics and is interesting themselves, so you fit the bill. I appreciate it, and I'll tell you, it's uh, it's been a long road to get to this point, and I've never had, in a sentence, me as the kind of cognitive marine guy and interesting kind of put together in the same sentence, but uh, I'll take, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's start there. Like, uh, how did, how did you get to uh, being, uh, you know, who you are and then how did the cognitive Marine start and just kind of give us your story? Well, uh, it really started when I was a, um, a battalion level commander. Um, as, as a commander of a large organization, it became uh, increasingly difficult to speak to my Marines. And what I found uh, to be more true uh, often than not was that um, uh, most Marines, and I think this is true for any service, uh, when you when you as a commander of a, of a large organization like an 05 or even 06 level command, as you as a commander, when you engage with your Marines, it's a very... Um, uh, um, kind of one-way conversation. Uh, usually the Marine is trying to get out of that kill zone that he's currently involved in. Right. And you're trying to really engage with that Marine, but the young guy is like, I just want to be out of here as quickly as I can w- without any any permanent damage. <laughs> and e- even though you're trying to do the right thing. Uh, so what I started was this Instagram account called The Cognitive Marine. And the reason why is because um, I knew that most of my Marines were on their phones uh, far more than they were engaging with any of their leadership. And um, as I look through Instagram, there's a lot of negativity out there uh, that is kind of bringing people down or down into these paths that are maybe not helpful for the average Marine or service member. So. Uh, I created this, uh, the, the cognitive room persona, basically willing to discuss and tackle subjects that maybe most uh, active component or active duty guys wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, game to discuss for, for a rare, you know, re, not anything bad. It's just not helpful to the overall direction. Right. And then get, give an opportunity to a lot of my Marines to talk about subjects that maybe they're less inclined to bring up in the, in the, when they're wearing their uniforms. And to be honest with you, it's really worked out incredibly well. I speak to Marines about subjects ranging from suicide to logistics, to my thoughts and opinions on things that maybe um, their their approach to work. A matter of fact, I just had a a Marine yesterday uh, or a few days ago tell me that he wants to exit the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps has assigned him to another job that is, largely disliked and uh, I gave him my unadulterated two cents about why I think he should take it something that I don't think many people could do 
Um, one, I've never met this Marine, but two, the, the, the impersonal nature of the social media platform known as Instagram gives enough like air gap that I could give this individual honest, compelling advice. And uh, there's no obligation, right? There's no like gain or loss uh, from, from his standpoint as to what's the purpose? Why is he telling me to do this? Uh, I don't know who you are. And so I'm just giving you what I think is the truth. Right. That's pretty cool. So like, uh, what was, uh, what was your advice to, uh, to him? So I told him that uh, if he truly did not like the job that he was going to go do, then he should leave. Uh, nothing could be worse than someone uh, waking up every day, hating their existence. Um, but I also told him on the flip side that there's a lot of variables in uh, why you should take uh, a new assignment. And to be honest with you, this Marine was going to go take a recruiting job, which in the Marine Corps, is, they're, they're widely disliked uh, jobs. But I told him there's there's probably a bunch of silver linings here. You be, You could possibly go to an area that's close to home, that is um, an easy place to recruit from. Um, hell, you may even like being a recruiter. You don't know because you've never tried. And right now, the only advice you're hearing this from is from people who have either done it and maybe didn't succeed or hated it for reasons other than the fact that it's recruiting. Uh, and there's a whole possibility that you could actually like this job it's just that you'll never get the chance to, to, to feel that feel what it tastes like. And uh, there's a and, and that's because you kind of killed this before it's even taken off. Right. Now, that makes sense. I, um, one of the things that uh, I know you've uh, you've had on your uh, YouTube channel, uh, General Mattis, before one of the things that like that uh, kind of stunned me whenever I was reading through his book is that he had actually been a, a commander in the you know, y'all's recruiting branch for a while. Uh, and that's something I, I had no idea and, and would have never placed on him. But he, like, you know, he took it like he did everything else. He was like, I'm just going to do the best I can with whatever job I'm given. And if that's recruiting, then that's what that's what's going to be. And uh, there's no telling what he learned from that. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably sound advice to give to that Marine. Yeah. And, you know, I've uh, Joe Mattis has been my boss a couple of times. Yeah. And um, uh, we recently spoke about General Mattis and a previous or uh, recently uh, i'm at the naval war college right uh, going through what they call top level school it's it's similar to like the 0506 going through the army war college uh and then other similar programs um general mattis is a great great commander um but the reason why i as a marine love him and most marines like adore him uh, who served under him um, are different from the reasons like other people that I meet kind of gravitate towards who this persona and who's the, who this person kind of portrays himself to be. And, and I, and I say that because uh, this, this gets back to that silver lining piece is that Gerald Mattis is a hard charging, totally dedicated individual. And, uh, he represents like the very best of what we hope to be, even in the worst of circumstances. And that's like, that's like a whole other level. And most of us, myself included, um, when things are getting tough, like I'm probably going to cave. Like, I just know who I am as a person, like given enough, like social or personal or professional stressors, you know, I'm like this Marine. I may, you know, give up. Who knows? But we all aspire to be someone like Gerald Mattis, who even in the face of like terrible circumstances, will find the very best in that situation and not just make it better, but make it, um, you know, make, make it awesome. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Gerald Mattis was fired from his last job uh, as a as a four star. and. Right. And he had been a he had he had been in two four star commands, one at GIFCOM, which he shut down. Imagine if you're like the last command, like you show up to a command, and you like tell the sec def, this place is so bad it needs to go away, and I plan on being its last commander. Hmm. And that's that that's that's a whole level, a uh, whole level of greatness right there. 
Right. Uh, but then he's uh, a CENTCOM commander and he decides that place needs to go. Uh, he gets fired early. He, he leaves a year early and um, he thinks it's pretty much done. But he gets called back to be the SECDAF and then he resigns, right? Okay. Um, so there is like a lot about General Mattis that, you know, that I, I love and appreciate. But I'm, you know, I'm just telling you, uh, there's perspectives and he is a he is a true meat eater hard charging uh, uh, you do not want to be in his uh, graze of fire I'll tell you that right now yeah I wouldn't think he would <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah um, I, I will tell you this like in our formation uh, his book is like adored uh, like I can think right now like our, I know our brigade s3s uh, he has a signed copy uh, on his on his shelf, and it's the only book that, that, that he displays. And like I myself, and multiple papers have actually cited uh, you know like a lot of his work uh, to kind of like make a lot of points. Um, and so yeah, he's he's had e uh, an outsized impact even on our organization, even though we're even even in a completely different you know branch of service. Yeah, and that video you saw on my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. uh, I asked him uh, as a personal favor to um, to speak to my Marines, and he did. Uh, and that's that's the kind of leader he is. Um, and, you know, I it's it, it's a um, it's a tough thing to to have served under his command because um, you may not like and appreciate all of his decisions. But uh, as I was telling a very senior enlisted leader the other uh, a few months ago, um, you know, he he's the kind of leader that um, does not um, care for fools at all and uh, would, would blowtorch people if they didn't hold or uphold the kind of high standards of their positions. Right. Right. And uh, we all know that in the army or in the Marine Corps, there's always a minimum standard. And um, you know, a lot of people tend to just when, when they get down to it, they just, just kind of ask themselves okay well did you do the job or not and that's a really kind of low government standard and that's that's definitely not his standard right and that's the kind of hard thing to to exist in is that to live in his world is an individual that is achieving a high standard day in and day out and uh to kind of uphold uh not the general mattis standard but the winning standard right and we all want to be on a winning team, but are you willing to do the work that, that will get you there? Yeah, that, that's a, that's pretty, pretty in, inspiring actually. Like, and that's part of the reason. So I, I built the intro to this podcast and one of the, uh, the kind of voice clips that plays through there is uh, one of our first sergeants talking about like always having a growth, growth mindset that you can always, you know, achieve for better. And uh, that's kind of what I, when we started this podcast, it's kind of what I envisioned, like this, what this was going to be all about. It was like, how can we like, not just like, you know, hit the minimums of being like this, like part-time force, but also but like be professionals that are constantly pushing the envelope that we did this. Okay. Now what can we do to be just a little bit better and a little bit better? So that, that goes you know right at the core of like what this whole endeavor is really all about. Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the things that um, as time has gone on in my own career, I have um, certainly been interested in and in not just trying new things, but looking at history. And that's like another big general Madison, uh, looking at history um, and, and making sure that, you know, we're not uncovering uh, things that, you know, we know are tried and true. And as an example, um, Gerald Mattis uh, used to carry around uh, seven or eight books with him every, every um, everywhere he went, and a lot of them were history books. And uh, before he would go into a big meeting or anything like that, uh, he would have done his extensive homework. And um, it's that's kind of intimidating when you step into a meeting and you're briefing him like I have been, and. You're, the person who's standing across the desk from you, not only is a force store, but for this particular meeting, he prepared probably weeks in advance. Right. And I can't say that I've ever prepared weeks in advance for a meeting, right? Um, and so here's somebody who's gonna take an hour brief from you, who has been so 
prepared for it, that now you're stepping into an arena with somebody. And those kind of lessons has spilled over into many things I do today. Um, I know, I know we'll get to it as, uh, especially when it comes to logistics, right? Is right. that, uh, uh, within the logistics career field, um, for, for all intents and purposes, it's been much maligned. Um, I, I think that's a kind of safe word to use is that it isn't exactly the sexiest of jobs that you could do, whether in the army or the Marine Corps, but, as we will find out very quickly here in the next war, we will fight. Uh, many of these jobs will become the most important at uh, different periods uh, to to um, a ground force commander or an infantry unit that's in the in the fight. Um, yeah. And the, go ahead. Oh no, no, yeah, I thought that's a a great place to kind of pivot. Um, so you know to. So get ready for this. I, I read your your paper that you uh, you have hung on your uh, the cognitive marine you know, Instagram profile, and uh, I thought it was like really interesting uh, for a, a lot of different reasons. But let's kind of let's get started with that. Just tell the the ice cream story that you told in, in the the paper about how you were delivering ice cream. I'm guessing that was probably in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, in Iraq, uh, as a logistics guy, uh, I have done hundreds of convoys um throughout throughout iraq as many of the listeners may or may not have uh you know deployed there or not but um often uh, i would uh do these deliveries of cargo and in this in these long mile long um convoys would be kbr trucks or uh, filled with ice cream and other frozen treats and um uh, we would be delivering to these large bases, you know, all these supplies for the PX or whatever it was. And um, for me, as inevitably these convoys would come under attack uh, and, and they were you know, prime targets, uh, we would go through the kind of trauma and drama of it all as we would fight our way through. Uh, I always found it very interesting that um, the way my commanders during that period um, quantified the value of our missions. And they did so in this very like odd way. And if, and I still feel it's very odd to this day, but they would tell me, um, oh, um, you know, Lieutenant or Captain, I've been there so many times, I've served in all ranks, damn near. But they would tell me, um, you know, as we're sitting in this large defect, kind of licking our wounds here, they would tell me that, uh, you know, what a great military that we can put ice cream in the middle of a desert and feed, you know, 5,000 troops in this large KBR tent. And deep down inside, I felt like there is something like seriously wrong with this picture that I'm looking at right now. That this was not um, war as I had, had envisioned it that this was like um, an extension of a bonus space base. It just happened to be in a war zone. And um, because of that mindset, uh, they would, you know, congratulate me on a job well done on delivering ice cream or whatever it was. And I just felt that there was something really wrong with that picture that um, I'm not. And still to this day, I'm not very impressed that, we could deliver ice cream in the middle of a desert, in the middle of a war zone, thousands of miles away. That that doesn't impress me much. Right. Um, what does impress me is that uh, those forces that were further out into combat outposts or deep into enemy territory, that those forces could get uh, good meals or all the support they could get um, as good or if not better than the ones at these large bases. And so this really became, uh, I remember uh, seeing this uh, often, um, war, your experiences may vary. And we're, we are all, uh, you know, uh, understand that there's, you know, uh, service members that spent their time in the international zone and the IZ in Baghdad, you know, laying out a pool, uh, going to parties in Baghdad. Uh, while 
the rest of us were sweating it out on the outskirts of the empire. Right. And I just felt that there was something really wrong with that. And I think a lot of that has to do with mindset. And, um, you know, people are naturally in the hunt and in the pursuit of comfort and whatever that may be, uh, comfort from your environment. You know, we have air conditioning, we have comfort from, you know, bugs and whatever it may be. And we'll do whatever it takes to bring comfort to our environment. Um, I pride myself as a, as a Marine, but not only uh, in my institution, we pride ourselves on, on, on uh, adapting ourselves to the environment that we are in and doing all that we can to not just meld the environment around us, but make that environment work for you. Uh, vice shaping that environment uh, to your to to suit your comfort uh, based decisions, and these these things can get very dangerous very quickly. And that's where kind of foraging really comes into play. Is that uh, what can you do as an organization to locally source all the logistics requirements that you need? Uh, I can tell you that there's probably a lot of logistics. Uh, that may be comfort items that you're going to go without, but there's probably a whole range of other things that you're going to gain by locally procuring all those resources you need. Um, as an example, uh, you may you may not get you know 21 flavors of ice cream as you would at you know some airbase in Iraq or some large um, uh, position in Kuwait or something like that. But what, what you will do is at very low cost, probably get a very good meal with everything you need. And not only that, but also um, build a local, um, a connection with a local supplier who may have your back and want no harm to ever come to you because it's in their best interest. Um, and you know, you're, you're getting the hearts and minds right outside the gate. Uh, not only that, but uh, you're lowering your logistics profile and you no longer need those. Maybe it's one convoy a week, vice five a week that now has to be on the road delivering uh, all these logistics requirements to you. Right. All of a sudden you're like, like you're, you're changing the, um, it's not just a paradigm shift, but you're changing the battle space effectively to, to your benefit. And I didn't put this in the article, but, uh, to me, it, this is a better example. Uh, Alexander the Great, uh, we, we know him as a great general. Um, when, he, uh, when he began his campaign into Asia, he got so far away from his home base in Greece that um, he made a strategic decision, and that was to turn his logistics in front of him, vice having this long trail of donkey carts and... Uh, you know, ships going all the way back to Macedon. And what he did was he combined his logistics with his scouts and they began to scout uh, logistically uh, for the appropriate places in which to position his army to be fed and watered, to lay down for, you know, a few weeks or a few months and survive the winters or survive whatever it may be that, uh, the further he got away from Macedon, which was by the time you know, he gets into Afghanistan and whatnot, he's thousands and thousands of miles away from Macedon. I mean, he's got a significantly long logistics train, but he was so successful, but because he turned his logistics in front of him. And, you know, as an as infantry unit, I think this is like the key takeaway from that example is that I can give you a hundred examples of where logistics has kicked our ass. You know, I, I put some in the article um, where uh, the lack of food and water forced the surrender of two major armies, one in Singapore and, um, and, uh, and one in Bataan. Right. So, yeah, no. I mean, oh. I, I, I think... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot there for not only your logistician, but your operations officer as they as you move deeper and deeper into battle space. Um, 
your lines of communication become like lightning rods to your position. And, you know, I kind of, uh, um, I tell a lot of my, um, to my infantry brethren that the real risk here is that you do all this camouflage, you put a cami netting, you camouflage your faces, you cover, you do everything you can to um, cover and conceal your positions. Um, you do all that you can, uh, but here comes your, log your, your logistics that is loud and uncamouflaged, not cover and concealed, and is going to give your positions away. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, um, that I think that we can take away from the, the Ukraine war was that like there's no such thing as like in the rear anymore. The, like that war seemed to have like infinite depth. Because, uh, you know, as long as they could range it with our artillery, they could hit it. And it seemed like that the Ukrainians did a really good job of decentralizing their, their logistics train so that way they didn't have those like, critical vulnerabilities to be exploited. And so what you're kind of advocating for is kind of a, a whole new way of, well, I guess it's not new because like you decided to like, you know, Alexander the Great did it really well, but by foraging or, or you know, living, learning how to live off of the economy, um, you decentralize that logistics train in much the same way. So that way you don't necessarily have to rely on uh, like, you know, army logistics, marine logistics, whatever to, to resupply you. So with that, like, what's like, what's the path forward? How do we kind of make the shift from the old KBR model of the GWAT to the, the thing that's going to, you know, take us to the next level whenever uh, we go to war, uh, maybe in like a littoral environment or, uh, you know, in, a, in an environment where we're at a, in uh, with a near peer. Yeah. So I, I think there's a couple things there is that uh, first uh, forging or 20, 21st century forging, as I like to call it, is a um, is not an all or nothing proposition. So there are going to be ample circumstances where uh, you're going to need the KBR and large DLA level logistics. That does not go away. Um, what changes is that when you're in this high threat environment where uh, now you can be sensed and detected and targeted from very far away, it becomes less and less likely uh, as a smart you know, maneuver force as we are that you're going to put your critical vulnerabilities, which are like our logistics ships or these very large kind of assets into harm's way uh, because they're, they're easy targets. And um, you're gonna have to do a couple things. One is that if you're looking at the battle space as an operations officer, uh, a guy like me would be whispering in your ear and saying, okay, uh, to that opso, hey, you need to segregate and um, uh, segregate the battle space into areas that are high risk to low risk. And when you're looking at the logistics kind of framework that you're going to be operating in, in this battle space, let's say it's in this, the, the Pacific littoral environment, then there's going to be some areas that are going to be high risk areas. And some areas are going to be low risk in the Pacific. Well, those low risk areas, I think you can count on the typical big army logistics to support you. But as you move further and further away from that low risk and into the extreme high risk, I think you have to um, you have to take a knee and really look at, okay, is the prototypical logistics going to support what our requirements demand? And if the answer is no, which um, you know we are very accustomed to uh, building something in the middle of nowhere and then forcing logistics to close the gap, right? That's right. just kind of our way. Uh, we can build it anywhere on the planet. And I think we got to take a knee and reevaluate whether or not that in fact is the best way forward. Because we risk a couple of things with that mindset. First, we risk uh, like destruction of our logistics stream, which has not been adequately designed to fight its way into that position and back, by, by the way. Um, and we no longer possess like the victory ships of World War II where we had thousands of uh, merchant marine ships and we could lose hundreds per, per month. Uh, we no longer have that scenario. And I just don't think uh, the political will exists to kind of undergo those kind of losses. 
So we have to realistically ask ourselves um, that and 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 uh, refocus our um, high risk operating environment and say, okay, if I'm able to get that one convoy in, whether it's ships, whether it's by air, whatever it may be, what is it that it's going to be on that one log train that's coming in? And then you're going to prioritize. Okay, it's probably going to be ammo, uh, probably some kind of medical. Uh, it's probably that, that's probably gonna be number two, and then um, it's it's gonna move kind of the rest of your priorities, maintenance and everything else are gonna move further and further down the list. So, but nowhere in that top ten, I can guarantee you, is gonna be ice cream, right? What's gonna be in that top ten is all your priorities, the stuff right. that you cannot source locally. Everything else, whether it's fuel, food, or water. Your, um, the, the, those are requirements you should be able to source locally. And that way you spare your high and high, uh, highly critical and vulnerable logistics strains. Um, the, um, uh, the uh, you know, the, the care that they need in order to prioritize their, their lives, logistics trains that are going in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, no that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that like, would if you're going to be in a, a high threat environment where you know somebody can range you, 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 you know your convoy could get hit. You want it to to roll the dice on things that you can't source. You know, just you know, by being creative, like you can't just necessarily create ammo out of nothing, but you can catch fish. Um, which I know you put in the article the uh, the basic school these guys cleaning fish. Um, yeah, and you know it makes me wonder. If that was like a in World War II, you know, like I would think that there was probably a lot more like hunter and fishermen in the formation than there probably is today. That that they were doing that anyways. Um, I know my grandfather uh, ended up uh, getting uh, like he got in trouble for, uh, for shooting some uh, German dude's uh, stag, uh, which they were eating. Uh, and I don't know all the details of the story, but I know that was a common thing that, that if they they ran across something, they, there was like a you know fresh protein source for them, they would pop it, and then that's what they they ate, uh, that evening. Um, yeah. So, like, how do we how do we bring that culture back to to the force uh, in a in an era where it seems like a lot of those skill those skill sets and those interests seem to have uh, have you know like you know dissipated for whatever reason? Yeah, uh, you bring up a valid point, and uh, the military is is probably the best place where you learn all these skills. And what's interesting is that most service members who join the military have never fired a rifle, right? Uh, but they do going through basic training or boot camp. Uh, same thing uh, when it comes to land navigation. Most don't know how to operate a lensatic compass, but every Marine, every soldier learns that basic skill, uh, you know, unquestioned. So the military has for generations uh, been teaching your average Joe on the street uh, what, what I like to call man skills. Like that is nothing... Uh, that is nothing new. And we actually do a pretty good job at teaching a lot of people basic man skills uh, or field craft. And, and this is the uh, kind of answer your question here. Um, I believe, you know, there is going to, in the very near future, cooks need to return back into the fold as the highly critical, uh, highly capable uh, people that they could be. I'm not saying they are right now. I think you look at your average cook, you're not seeing, you know, the your your equivalent of a breacher, you know, on an assault team. You know what I mean? You're you're not seeing that. But that doesn't mean you cannot train that. And so this is what I'm really asking, uh, you know, in, in the logistics career field, is that all of us, whether you're a motor tee, whether you're a mechanic, or your food service, whatever you may be. We raise our game to meet and match the, the ground force, the breachers, the assaulters, you know, all those that are closing the last 10 yards of the enemy. Um, they have all these Gucci schools they're going to. They have all this high-end training. And there's no limit to the amount of training any commander's willing to sign off on as long as there's funding and ammunition available in order to train their ground forces to make sure they're like beaten up against the high end of their capabilities. Right. But 
I can almost guarantee you that the this if I were to flip this entire situation 180 and say, show me a logistics unit that is beating up against the high end of their training. Show me the logistics unit that is spending every training dollar that they get on pushing the envelope of their training. You're not gonna you're not gonna find it. Right. And I I've I've been in this gun club 23 plus years. And I've served with all kinds of units around the world. And I've yet to come across logistics units that are beating up against the very high end limits of what they can do. Right. Yeah, this seems to be that there's a there's a much different culture in your combat arms fields than in your uh, your logistics uh, uh, you know fields. Um, and like going about trying to fix that is is quite a task, but that does seem to be the task that if you want these guys to like really kind of think creatively and kind of push the envelope, you're looking for a, a kind of a culture shift in the, you know, away from the, the, you know, kind of KBR mentality that like we just get it and we warm it up and serve it, you know, uh, to like, okay, how do we solve this, uh, this problem of food and water? And then what skill sets do I need? What tools do I need? Uh, to to do it effectively in whatever environment you deploy me in, um, yeah. So uh, there was a uh, there was yeah. a book I wanted, I wanted to bring up with you, and I don't know, like, so a couple of years ago, I went through a, kind of like a desire to uh, to really learn logistics, like, because I I got exposed to it uh, through our, our last deployment, and we realized how little I knew about that that whole world, and um, I I. St- decided well the best way to learn about it is just to start reading through history so i started reading like about the falklands war and all, all of these things and i came up across a book that reminds me of this conversation um i cannot say that the general's last name i could never figure out how to pronounce it it's like pagio but it's called moving mountains have you ever heard of that i have i've, I've heard of the book i've not read it yeah so he was kind of making a lot of uh, very similar i would encourage you to, to read it so it's, it's a good book uh, but uh, he was kind of encouraging the same thing where uh, he ended up being a, a company commander for a, a uh, uh, an infantry unit in Vietnam through like this like random series of events. And like if you read it and you realize that like, like I'm like off, bear in mind it's been, been a minute since I read it. But uh, he he kind of went from being a logistics officer to exposing himself to um, the world of the infantry. And then when he came back, he basically said the same thing. He was just like, there's like a culture shift that needs to be happening here. That like these guys are just kind of like, well, we just, you know, move the stuff from point A to point B. And they weren't really trying to like get after it and, and try to, you know, be the best they could be with it. And um, and so the rest of his career is basically based on that experience of trying to uh to get the the army to kind of like shift away from being one type of mentality when it comes to logistics to being this very A-type personality in the logistics field because he saw how critical it was. And uh, he ends up being like kind of the lead planner for uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And a lot of the stuff that that like you're advocating for, like he did at the same time, he was just like, hey, look, why bring all of this stuff over here whenever we can just go buy it on the economy over there? And uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see that, that kind of come full circle. And, and I wanted to let you know that you you have an ally in the field. I actually tried to reach out to him to get on the podcast, but I think he, he may be dead. Like he's, he's an old yeah. Guy. So, oh, wow. yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's good to hear. And, and actually I meet hundreds of thousands of service members that agree vehemently with this kind of position uh, through the cognitive Marine. And that's really where the cognitive and the cognitive Marine has really come from is that, a lot of it is, you know, you don't really need to hear this from me. If you just study like the operating environment that we are going to be in, in the very near future that we're, we are in right now, if you just study that and you realize that we're not going to build thousands of new victory ships to support our campaigns, that's not going to happen. Okay. So we agree on that. Uh, we also agree that the American public just lacks the stomach to problem solve through casualties, okay? That, that's not gonna happen. And then finally, the only people that really can fix this are, um, are, 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 are is, is really us. Um, and what we don't need is more of like some 3D training program, um, some like billion dollar acquisition program to change logistics. No, that's not what we need. What we need is just back to basics, 
uh, hardened, uh, highly capable logisticians able to close the gap and working as hard, if not harder than the maneuver force. And th these are all quite simple. And I'll give you a great example. Like uh, I'll use uh, your um, your brigade or your your battalion is a battalion or brigade. I'm sorry. Well, well, so this is a brigade podcast, yeah. But I'm a battalion yeah. captain, so either one you get by with. Okay, great. So um, I would reckon that most of your training is probably three to five days long in terms of how long your training is. Yeah. And um, I, I think I'm pretty safe with that number, right? Yeah, that, that's that's about right. I mean, like us being a um, you know a, a guard force that we're kind of constrained by time, but we'll have you know random uh, XETC cycles where we do like two or three weeks at a time. But for the most part, yeah, you're right. Three to five days is, is a it's a good guess. And even then, your operations maybe during that twenty or during those three days at the max or two days, whatever it is, maybe max out at eight to twelve hours of training period, right? Right. And, yeah. there, and there's a lot of like um, um, spray, uh, fairy dusting of all mm -hmm. the requirements in order to make the training happen. And But I, I will tell you, this is not a problem of the National Guard or the reserves, or this is a problem throughout the entire military. And there's nothing unique to that. Most of the active duty training is only three to five days in length. And there's a whole host of all very good reasons, all of them very good. But the problem is, is that you can carry three days of logistics. And so you never really get to stress test any of your logistics. You never really get to put to practice any of the things I talk about under that model. And not only that, but you never get to experience what it's like after day 15. And you're being told that you're not getting a resupply when you plant. Right. And so uh, the, the problems now become, how big is your imagination? Well, I mean, no one wants a logistician imagining anything. We just want logisticians to do exactly what the uh, logistics uh, report uh, support request sheet says. That is it. And the, the issues become much more uh, of a, um, uh, yeah, yes, there is ample responsibility on the, uh, on the, um, on the logistics kind of uh, career field, but there's also responsibility on the commanders as well to put their logistics in a position to exercise all of their capabilities and also devise new ones. And right. that is the, that is the, 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 the most, troubling and the most difficult of all of these parts is that you've got to like it's not necessarily that you have to experience all that but you can easily stress test all facets of these logistics so long as your imagination allows and um uh and the the maneuver force does this quite well uh i'm sure often uh your brigade uh, is using mortars, is using direct fire weapon systems, is using air, is using all types of support in order to prosecute missions. Uh, but not very often, I bet, is your brigade exercising all the logistics it has, just even its three to five day training uh, windows. Right. Yeah, well, that's a good, a good observation, good point. Like, for the most part, um, they are, you know, they're there to kind of support whatever training is uh is going on and uh a lot of times that doesn't require probably the the full force that's available uh, to them yeah and and this is um you know forging as a mindset uh as an example let's say your unit is going to some training area i think one of the big questions your unit could ask is okay let's just let's just pretend for a second that we've been cut off from our fuel resupply, um, is it possible that we could go to the local diesel uh, shell station and buy diesel fuel if we had to, like we would on some, uh, you know, kind of uh, island in the middle of the Pacific where there are fuel stations? Do we have that mechanism in place if we had to? Because you guys use strikers, right? Correct. 
Yeah, so I think uh, you could easily answer this question on a training window uh, over a weekend and, um, you know, figure out whether or not you have the right filters to filter out the some of the bad stuff in that diesel. And what do you need to get that diesel to JP8, considering that's probably what you guys use? Yeah, it is. And, and, and there's probably a, um, a mechanism, like a credit card, a fuel card, that you could use to do this. But is it does it work for out-in-town fuel stations? And do your guys have this as a mindset uh, already automatic? You know what I mean? Right. And maybe you don't, you don't want a fuel truck coming out to your position because it'll give you guys away, right? Right. And maybe you need to use, send a fuel truck in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, some, some small little fuel tanker that can be easily covered and concealed um, or maybe a series of them. And then that's how you gain your fuel. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways just in the refueling that you can look at uh, how to support your logistics. Yeah. And get creative. We had a, um, there's another Colonel I'm going to introduce you to over email at least who had a very similar kind of uh, a thought process on masking his uh, uh, electronic signature. Um, by using like ex existing civilian, uh, you know, infrastructure to basically hide in it and still be able to transmit, so he could still emit stuff, and but it just gets like lost in the noise of what was happening naturally in the environment. It seems to me that like that mentality is very similar to kind of what you're advocating for. That like you you don't want to you know just have like the big army fuel truck come drive out and like, fill up your striker because it's very obvious what's ha happening and and a Hemet that's fully loaded with, you know with gas is slow and it's very you know easily seen and detected but if you could sneak it in somehow in some sort of creative way then and and hide inside the environment that you, that you're in well then all of a sudden you you fortify your logist logistics train in a way that is going to be a lot more durable. Uh, in a kinetic fight with a with a near peer adversary, so I think it's, it's that's exactly cool. right. Yeah, that you're doing. Yeah, it's exactly right. And you know, um, you guys probably have uh, the fuel uh, trailers or the water trailers, right? The big yeah. with the water bowl on there. Yeah, water buffaloes. Uh, yeah, the water buffaloes. Yeah. So, uh, have you seen what's the next smallest size from the water buffalo is going to be the uh, the jerry cans, right? Right. So there's yeah. nothing in between. Um, so as an example, during World War II and in Vietnam uh, and in Korea, uh, U.S. Army developed a, a water um, uh, container that could be hung from a tree hidden under foliage and could bridge the gap between the jerry can and the water buffalo. Hmm. And once it was empty, it could be easily carried to its next location. And the water buffalo would come around and refill those water containers that could be hung from trees. Uh, and a unit would have eight or nine of them, so they would be dispersed. So one, you wouldn't lose them all if you got struck with a mortar or a, a five, five, six round went through it. Um, you, you wouldn't have to hide it, uh, go to great pains to hide it because they're hanging under trees anyways. And uh, they're easily mobile. So you don't need any additional logistics on top of um, uh, the, uh, the, the water buffalo in the can. There's something that, that exists in uh, the, uh, the kind of like backcountry hunting world that's very similar to that. Um, obviously, it's not, that, not there to, to be hidden. But like, and I, I kind of encountered this uh, on a recent hunt, like just this last year, that the water source was about a mile down that down a mountain. I'm by myself, and so like by the time I would, you know, get to a glassing knob, sit there, and then like I'd run out of water, I'd have to go back down there, fill up all my water again, and come back up. And by the time I got back to the glassing knob, I was back out, like I was like you know halfway to being black on water again. Something like that. Um, like the reason why it exists in that world is it's to help be that stopgap that you can fill up a bunch of water, take it way up up top, and then you have a kind of a, a resource for a longer period of time. And it seems like that's kind of like what you're what you're saying that they used to do. But I have I have no idea why we went away from uh, something like that other than oh yeah, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, exactly. And the the other piece here is that um, the U.S. military up until 1967. Uh, used um, the metal mess kits that right. defined World War II, Korea, and all that. 
But now, because of MREs, we build these massive trash sites um, because of all the trash that's built from the MREs. And, you know, again, these can give our positions away. And then two, uh, it used to be field craft. You teach Marines or soldiers how to clean these uh, mess kits and be able to continue to eat. Uh, but we went away from that. Um, if you went if you went camping this weekend, you're not going to bring an MRE out with you. I mean, I doubt you will. No. I think you're I think you're cooking because yeah. today the I, I think today the technology is so good that there's there's very little gain from bringing an MRE, but there's so much more gain uh, from just cooking out in the field. And I camp on the weekends often. Um, even with my wife and, and, uh, my, my family, but we, you know, we, we, there, there is like, no one's bringing an MRE out on, on a weekend camping trip. Right. We're cooking. And, right. uh, you know, as a, as a hunter myself, you know, I, I have, um, my, uh, um, my level of, uh, of, uh, concern is fairly low when it comes to, um, going to markets or grocery stores or farms and butchering an animal in order to to eat well, and I think you as you as well as uh, anyone else who's uh, who's a hunter probably understands. Man, that's some pretty damn good meat if you're eating it something is. that was freshly killed in the last day or so. Right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you, you kind of bring the the mess kit thing up and and the MREs because I mean like the MREs do definitely leave a uh, a massive signature. But I'll tell you this: just as a chaplain circulating, like uh, I, I bet you if I see ten soldiers, probably two or three of them maybe eating actually eating MREs, but the rest of them all have jet boils and they're they're boiling something you know that either they either uh, brought with them or um, they're 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 cooking something out of those those MREs. So the the like I guess the skill set and the culture is already kind of there. We're just not leveraging it, um, you know, as as well as we could. Yeah, and, and those are all kind of um, uh, fair points, especially when you get the small and smaller formation, like a like a, a squad or a section out on patrol for multiple days. Um, you know, you they probably have gone to great pains to cover and conceal themselves, and now they have to come out of that cover and concealment in order to retrieve logistics. Right. And especially if your logisticians are not matching their level of cover and concealment, then it's a suicide mission for all involved, right? And, that, right. and that's what you're seeing in Ukraine, especially, is that you're seeing inept, um, you know, I think you, you see all these pristine vehicles, especially in the early campaign against Ukraine, you saw a lot of pristine Russian vehicles that looked good in a, in a field, but when they started operating, I mean, they, they were worthless. Um, and they were easy targets. And this is the kind of other piece of logistics is that we as a, as a whole holistic force also need to realize that you guys are, uh, to use you, to use you guys as an example, you guys are a striker, platform-based organization so you're not getting rid of the strikers but what you need to do is probably do all that you can to enable the strikers to the degree that no other platform pulls away any inertia from the striker so as an example you guys probably have like five ton size vehicles or seven ton size vehicles right. and these fleets of logistics support vehicles um, are not as uh, um, highly uh, capable as a striker, obviously. And they're built to do like one set of things. The problem becomes is that now these vehicles require their own logistics. So you got to have cranes. You got to have wreckers to, to, to tow these vehicles out. Uh, now you need a maintenance site because these vehicles are not very reliable. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Right, and, no, and they consume a, a, a ton of fuel. So um, one of the other pieces that I've been advocating for is that uh, our logistics cannot cost more than the maneuver force, right? 
if that if, if that makes sense like no yeah it does i've never actually thought about it that way but yeah that, that actually makes a lot of sense that if uh if the logistics is more expensive than the than the the purpose that you're there for then you're doing something wrong yeah yeah so, something is wrong here like why is it that all of this is costing me more in terms of lives money requirements everything else why is this so expensive on on a list of of expenses if you break it all down and, and i'm not just talking about dollars i'm talking about everything else yeah, just to do my my to just to support my maneuver force then it's kind of the the tails wagging the dog here right uh, we, we got this thing really wrong um and where are all the efficiencies that we can that we can build and what i like to call the hidden movements where are all the hidden movements that we can uh, create or, or build out in order to reduce the overall cost in terms of whatever it is that is, is costing you to, to execute XYZ mission. Where's my requisite uh, reduction or, or, or increase, frankly, what it most likely is, the increase in mission capability uh, with a requisite decrease in mission, um, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, right. from your logistics and basically um you know what what i really believe is that logistics as a community needs to raise their game in order to lower the the, the, the cost to the to the maneuver force right now that makes a lot of sense well look, we, we're we're at about an hour i don't want to keep you too long but what i do would like to get into is i didn't realize that you were a co-founder with the lethal minds journal um and we yeah. had so we've had Worth Parker on the, the podcast. He's a, he, he will actually post tomorrow. This is a Thursday. Um, John Daly uh, was our first episode. So like, uh, what's the, what's the backstory on the lethal mind journal and uh, like, how did, how did that get going? Yeah. So um, it was a natural fit for me and a couple of the guys that all helped um, pitch in to uh, co-found uh, lethal minds in, in a sense that, your typical like journals, like military centric journals, uh, a lot of them are really read by officers and written by officers. Um, occasionally you'll see a, a staff sergeant or some young buck in there uh, writing something. Uh, but for the most part, they are retired officers, active duty officers, and that's really it. Um, and the journals are really centered around them. Um, they're the, really the only ones that are reading these things. Last time I checked in a, in a, in a squad bay or some hooch, I've yet to find um, some professional army journal in any of those squad bays, if you know what I mean. Yeah, right. Yeah, ain't going to happen. Uh, right. I don't care how much, how much praying you do, chaps. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> right. So um, I think there's a... Um, there's a bit of deliberate uh, th that's that's a deliberate move by both the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Army to cater to an to to a part of an organization that does all the decision making at the very highest levels. And that's not wrong. I'm not I'm not crapping all over any of those journals. I'm right. just saying they're missing the 90% of the Joes that are in the formation. And they, they're missing them deliberately, whether they like it or not. And they may tell you, you know, you, you interview some guy from an army professional publication. They may tell you, oh, I get thousands of guys that really read it. But I, I, can, I can tell you that you're missing really the heartfelt uh, large group that matter. And that is the, your average uh, junior soldier that is going to do all the heavy lifting. So what we decided to do with Lethal Minds uh, journal is to really focus our efforts on those junior folks, have them contribute to articles, have them submit, and have them face the same kind of scrutiny as as you would at a um, with an officers or uh, any other kind of um, senior level or um, institution would. So, um, what and to provide. Uh, in-depth feedback and uh, basically make Lethal Minds, uh, I think, what it is today, and that is a cutting-edge product 
that is contributing to the great understanding of what the modern warfare really demands from us, especially in the near future. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I very much uh, enjoy it. Bulletin uh, from the Borderlands and stuff like that. There's a couple of uh, uh, articles that, or a couple of, of publications that I, uh, you know, constantly try to uh, the digest and that is definitely one of them uh, so thanks for getting that started um i've even I've published stuff before so it's uh, near and dear to my heart for sure phone disconnected yeah 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 sorry about that no it's okay yeah um but yeah i you know I, I tell you you know podcasts like this are also helpful because it's difficult in a in a short form kind of process uh to put any meaningful content out that would right. be uh, uh, better understood. And, and as, as you kind of ascertained and probably well understand now, there's there's a great depth to forging that just isn't food. Yes, mm -hmm. that was the focus of my article, but uh, there's much in the way that your average uh, combat arms unit can do with forging. And it's not just food, it's fuel like we talked about, but there's other things, you know, whether it's supplies or stuff that you can procure off the local economy. Uh, right, to build right. a much more competent and capable force. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's a, a great place to end it. I uh, absolutely love being able to uh, talk to talk to you. So thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for being flexible. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.